welcome to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. About 3,000 years ago, a young shepherd found himself face to face with a giant called Goliath. The boy reached for his sling and the rest is history. After slaying Goliath, David went on to supplant Saul as king of Israel and to unite the 12 Jewish tribes into one nation, with Jerusalem, the city of David, at its heart. David did have some advantages. He was beloved of God, a charmer, and a warrior. But David was also a scheming, vengeful murderer. And to top it off, he slept with another man's wife. All this, and he still managed to die at a ripe old age, his vision for Israel safe in the hands of his son Solomon. Robert Pinsky, the former poet laureate, calls this the story of stories. It's been told and retold over centuries, and now Pinsky adds his voice to the tale in a new book called The Life of David. Robert, welcome to ThoughtCast. My pleasure, Jenny. Robert, you're a critic and translator, as well as a poet, and you also teach creative writing at Boston University, but you're not a religious scholar or a rabbi. So let me ask you about the- This is true. <laughs> we can go on record as saying that is true. I am not a religious scholar or a rabbi. You chose art. Yes, from early on I did choose art. On the other hand, I suppose as people say, the word rabbi really means teacher. So in that sense, I suppose I could plead guilty. Uh, I have earned my bread by teaching for most of my life. So as this artist and teacher and critic, how much of the David in your book is your imagination, your creation, and how much of him is real? The last question is a really important one, how much of him is real. Uh, if you take reality as having to do with uh, scientific evidence, there is a rock that has the name David on it that is the right age. And there are archaeological sites that somewhat correspond to some of the things that were said about him. Uh, in my mind, the best evidence that somebody a little bit like who we read about in the Hebrew Bible and in the legends, the best evidence that somebody like that existed is that a lot of the book of Samuel with the stories in it was written only a couple of generations after he lived. So either people at the time knew it was fiction or they could, they could judge some of it. So I think there probably was some kind of warlord or leader or big shot or thug person, you know. A charismatic a one. There was somebody who had a lot of appeal and uh, the David, the name means the one who is beloved. Uh, but we are free, these are imaginings. He is partly imagined by many, many centuries of people and if this isn't too much of a cop-out, we are all imagined. You are imagined by your family. They know you, but they also imagine you, and you live in their imaginations, your friends. I live in the imagination of the people I know. So David is more imagination than science, which is not to say he isn't real. It's not to say there wasn't some David or Davud of a Bedouin-like kind who had a lot of these traits and probably did some of these things. In your book, you say at some point that memory is imagination. I think that memory is imagination. Um, you cannot have a record that does not reflect imagination. 
The great thing about David is, I don't know of any other life that has been lived or imagined that has so many different kinds of reality in it. He's an artist, he's a leader, he's a killer. Um, even though he is both horrible and beautiful, he is in a way that reminds you of human beings. And uh, he's almost all of the things you can think of that someone might do in a lifetime are in this story. Well, David's very cosmopolitan. That's one of the, that's one, my David uh, does tend to be cosmopolitan. Uh, he's of mixed blood himself. His most loyal supporters are uh, the Cherethites and Pelethites, various other, I suppose, mercenaries, but they're rather loyal to him. And um, he, he works for a Philistine king for quite a few years. More than works for him, appears to be rather loyal to him. This is probably in keeping with the tribal context. It's probably not entirely cosmopolitanism. It's probably in part the pragmatic ways of a warrior chieftain who will work for this side, will work for that side, will make an alliance with these people, and it's all very intricate. It's not like our modern world of contracts. In terms of your contribution to the story of David, your friend Stephen Greenblatt, the Shakespeare scholar, has a great quote, which I will summarize here. Pinsky has at once unraveled and created a figure of mythic power. So you are creating as well as unpacking this, this fellow. My job is the job of storyteller. My job is not the job of the scholar, as you pointed out. Many scholars, of course, know that, for example, the star of David is a late European, late Middle Ages fabrication, but it's part of his story. And uh, I come to that information as somebody who learned it in the course of this project. I saw that star on the wine bottle. I assumed it was the Star of David. Even the rabbis don't mention it. Are you religious, Robert? Uh, not in any uh, conventional way. Uh, I don't go to any uh, uh, church or synagogue. I don't, uh, I don't uh, have separate dishes for milk and meat. Um, I don't, um, I guess the word is practicing. I don't practice. You were so, raised in this, it's always referred to as a nominally orthodox household. We belonged to the Orthodox synagogue in Long Branch, New Jersey. We did have two sets of dishes for dairy and meat. Uh, on the other hand, my parents were, uh, they fancied themselves rather glamorous uh, people. Their life was secular in just about every way. They didn't go to the synagogue, sometimes on a high holy day, certainly never on uh, the Sabbath. So it was a way of being respectable. They both graduated from high school in the town. It was a small town of a certain kind. And one of the things you do is have a religion. So um, they had one. listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with the poet Robert Pinsky about his new book, The Life of David. After uniting the Jews, David went on to found a ruling dynasty, the House of David, 
And it's from this bloodline that the Jewish Messiah will finally come. For Christians, of course, Jesus is the Messiah, and he too is considered to have come from the house of David. So this story of David's life and how it's interpreted is clearly a touchy subject. Let's take a look at how David's been portrayed over the years and what effect these portrayals have had. Robert, in researching your book, you turned, as you mentioned, to the various legends of the life of David from the Talmud and also to the King James Bible. And you write that the Bible, for example, presents different Davids at different times. Mm -hmm. I mean, I turned to Hollywood. I can't say I studied the Gregory Peck film. I've never seen the Richard Gere, which I'm told is bad almost beyond belief. Um, yes, it is a story of stories and it keeps accumulating information. I have a lot of trouble following the descent of Jesus from David. It's very, very tricky because it's not through Joseph, of course. Joseph wasn't involved, genetically speaking. So it has to be through the Jewish mom, Mary. But Mary was an immaculate conception. So it's a very, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where I tend to doze off at a certain point. And yes, they would find a way to make it come out like this. Um, I am, I'm scavenging for interesting stories. Um, my luxury is trying to make an interesting work of art. My luxury is I don't have to choose amongst all these. Speaking of imagination, there's more than one David in the Bible, you write in your book. Yes. You mentioned there's an early source David who's mm -hmm. nationalistic, a warrior, more secular, a later source David who's more pious. Mm -hmm. Why are these differences emerging in this way? There are historical explanations. There's a time when, uh, I, I tried lightly to go into it in the book, there's a time when we're going from a tribal society to a society that is uh, less nomadic, a little bit less tribal, and inevitably then more pluralistic, less like a blood family. And um, we tell stories to go with what we want to happen. In the case of this character, it somehow all fits. So um, take the interpolation when David is dying. David is dying, he says to Solomon, that enemy of mine, you know what to do to him. Don't let his gray hair go down to Sheol, unbloodied. And that one, I promised that one that I wouldn't kill him. You don't know that promise. Don't let his gray hair go down to Sheol unaided. And then there's an interpolation. Then somebody adds later, and by the way, read the Torah, be good to your parents, do your homework, you know, keep kosher, just a, a patently anachronistic and... Uh, out-of-character set of moral admonitions. It was imposed and, on David yeah, after the fact. Yeah, and in the book I say uh, that it's comical to have this added onto what is rather savage uh, dying words. And uh, the argument against me is, oh, of course it's an interpolation, that's right, it's added on. But it's not just absurd. It expresses all these hundreds of years of need to believe that David in fact, was a yeshiva boy. Well, since David wasn't a yeshiva boy, he was a warrior, warlord, whatever you want to call him. Uh, it's funny. 
and it would be it would be uh, inexcusable to ignore something that true when you're trying to make a book. So what happens when the Talmud decides to tell the story of David? What do they do with this? What, what is their take on, on this complicated guy? It's so moving. If you think about what exile is, these people are in exile. They've lost their temple. They've lost their rituals. They've lost their place they were. Uh, in the book of Esther, the only book of the Bible that God does not appear in, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, uh, their language is threatened. Everything that holds them together is threatened. It makes sense that in that Babylonian exile and in the whole diaspora, in the European diaspora, the king becomes very important. He's their king. He's one of the things that uh, makes them feel they can hold together. And so the Talmud is quite protective of David's reputation, it seems. There are some bizarre attempts to exculpate David, make David okay. Um, there's that bizarre legend where poor Uriah becomes uh, the serpent and David is Adam and Bathsheba's Eve. It's really quite daffy. And there's the other one I like is the one with the armor. Goliath had this big armor and uh, when David tried to chop his head off, he couldn't. He had all this armor all over him. And in the Philistine army, the guy who had the key to the armor was Uriah. And Uriah said, oh, I'll give you the key if you give me a beautiful young Israelite bride. So see, he didn't have a right to Bathsheba. He got her by bargaining this key. So therefore, he wasn't really her husband. So yeah, so David didn't do anything that bad. And there's a series of, of uh, really weird uh, attempts to rehabilitate him. Date, and you can just picture people dreaming these things up. The story is such an ugly story, the story of Bathsheba. Uh, we treat it as a love story. I don't see any love element in it at all. Uh, in your version of this story, you really do emphasize that it's sex that drove David to her. to me. The love is with uh, Michal. Uh, that's the love story, it's David and Michal. Bathsheba, he gets very hot seeing her take a bath. She comes, she sleeps with him, she goes home. It appears to be over. And then she says, I, I, I say in the book something like it's the most fundamental of all human complications, I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> that is the basic complication of life. And yet this is the sin, this is the key sin that David does that yeah. upsets God so much, and, not the well, slaughter of What does he do when he finds out you're pregnant? Does he say, <laughs> well, you must divorce Uriah? No. Does he say, I love you dearly, you must come be with me? No. He sends for Uriah. This doesn't seem like a great love to me. He sends for Uriah and he gets him drunk. He gets him drunk and he says, well, why don't you go home now, go to bed, you beautiful wife, that good-looking Bathsheba, go home to your wife. And Uriah is such a straight arrow, he's taken a vow of celibacy while he's fighting and he's aware that his comrades are fighting and they have taken this vow. He doesn't sleep with Bathsheba, inadvertently depriving the king of a way out of a paternity situation. And when David can't get out of the paternity problem, that's when he sends Uriah with a message saying, give this to the general, Uriah. Uriah gives it to the general and says, send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle where you're sure to get killed. Very unattractive story. 
And we can't treat it as a story in which he's overwhelmed by love. He's overwhelmed by the difficulty of having fathered a child. He's on the defensive. It appears to me that he's more interested in how he's going to look than in his passion for Bathsheba. Um, Michal, on the other hand, loved David. That's the sentence in the Bible. Michal loved David. And after much water has gone over the bridge and she has another husband who is terribly maltreated, they conceive the kind of hatred and anger with one another that to me can only come from genuine love. These are the kinds of insights in your life of David that I think are really coming from you. I see you as adding this extra psychological layer to the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Insights have to come from somebody. <laughs> and if you're going to make it a good story, people have to have feelings. And if I make a contribution to the history of David, I think I gave a set of uh, real feelings that hang together to these people. You're listening to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with the poet, translator, teacher, and critic Robert Pinsky about his new book on the life of David. It's interesting that of all the sins that David commits, it's sleeping with another man's wife that is the one that irritates God the most. Forget about the hundreds of thousands of people his army has slaughtered. Forget about his deviousness. Forget about the fact that he kills Bathsheba's husband. It's this sin of sex that is, is the problem. It is kind of striking. What about Uriah? What about the other guys who got sent to go with Uriah to the hot powder of the battle where the best archers are firing down at you from a wall? Didn't David sin against them too? Only God, according to both David and the way the story has gone down in the, in the Talmud, the way the story has been reflected over time. It may be, I am far from a theologian, but maybe one of the great divisions of humanity is the people who are willing to accept that all sins ultimately are mainly sins against God and um, reprobate humanists like me who say, but wait a second, he sinned, he, he sinned against Uriah. And that just has a different feeling from um, eating a ham sandwich with a milkshake or saying, the hell with you, God, your mama's ugly. It is different than uh, violating a dietary law or blaspheming, he sent him to a horrible death. And does, he did it in a sneaky way. Does this distaste of gods for this sex with Bathsheba in any way, do you think, reflect these budding Judeo-Christian values, these puritanical values of no sex, please, but violence, that's all right. We're comfortable with violence, but please, n none of that uh, nakedness. I don't know. I don't really fully understand it. Uh, I can only answer again in a kind of visceral way to answer the previous thing. Uh, when I see um, religious males of a certain kind, I see the mullahs with their beards, their long beards and their beautiful, clean, flowing robes. When I see the Orthodox Jewish men with the long beards and the hats, and I know that at the wedding they dance with the women with a handkerchief in between because they want to avoid possibly touching her uh, because she may be unclean. Something in me, in a visceral way, I don't like male... Uh, 
it's the way I feel when I see some of the uh, Catholic Church prelates try to um, uh, try to explain how they dealt so badly with child abuse. How did they manage to do that? I met people who were experts in child abuse who met with um, the uh, Boston Cardinal a decade before the thing exploded, and they tried to talk to them about how this the seriousness of the thing in relation to children, and they felt these elderly single men didn't understand. They really were being very courtly and didn't get it. And I don't know, I don't want to slander religious people or slander my own gender, but there's a syndrome somewhere of uh, male cleanliness and male self-righteousness that just drives me nuts. I really don't like it. I have a visceral uh, uh, response against it. And, and that prejudice, that prejudice uh, I'm sure, uh, I suppose you could say infects the book or guides me in certain passages. I don't, ultimately, I don't want to be patient with attempts to excuse David. I don't want to indulge them. I want to laugh at them. Well, speaking of these apologists for David, you do mention in the book how the rabbis in the Talmud are trying so hard to keep David pure. There's a quote from the Talmud that says, whoever says David sinned is simply an error. And then they go on to argue that Bathsheba was actually not even married at the time, so David didn't even commit adultery. Yeah. This is what's uh, getting your goat. Well, yeah, I, in another way you could say, well, here's another imagining. We'll reimagine it a whole other way. She wasn't married, he was okay. On some level, I suppose they're entitled to reimagine it that way, and I will imagine it my way. The net effect of all of this is, though, that it seems that the image of David is a manipulated one. He's a symbol. In a way, he's almost a slogan. He's used for this purpose or that, as his story has been told over time. It's been altered and mutated, not just for artistic, but political purposes. What does that say about the way we can look at our history? You could say the same thing about the Founding Fathers of the United States. You could say the same thing about Queen Victoria, King Leopold of Belgium, apparently an appalling man. At one point, the story was told of him as a great benefactor of Africans. Um, Almost anything you choose to write about will be refracted through your own sensibility and what you know, what you want, your politics, and all the sensibilities and politics between you and that reality. So just about everything comes out that way. Um, it, I'm not saying, being totally relativistic, I'm not saying there are no truths, there's no truth in history, but you have to you have to use your imagination. You can't pretend that it's there, untranslated, untranslatable, untransmogrified, just patently there. It's not true of your own mom and dad and what you know about them. Um, if you lived for hundreds of years, you would still be seeing them in different ways. And uh, when the doings of rulers and armies are involved, of course, political passions will come into it, at least as much as personal passions come into it. When I think about whether mom was fair to dad and so forth. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with the poet Robert Pinsky about his new book, 
the life of David. One of the things that I'm not sure is emphasized as much as one might expect in your book is David as the poet. You're the poet. His psalms you often quote, but they're not really the key, the key driver for you. Why not? I knew I wasn't going to write a work of literary criticism. I knew I was going to concentrate on the stories. And it is possible to concentrate on the poems in the stories. So the great elegies, the elegy for Abner, the elegy for Saul and Jonathan, um, there are poems that are part of his story, that he writes as part of the story. And I knew I was going to concentrate on those, and that amongst the many conventional ideas of what someone might expect me to write would be a series of analyses and commentaries on the Psalms. Boring to me. It didn't seem interesting. Uh, I'd rather tell the story. Nonetheless, may we conclude with some poetry, Robert? I'd love it if you could read that elegy by David for King Saul and Jonathan. Yeah, so, sure. Now, Jonathan is David's friend, Saul's son, and both Saul and Jonathan die in this battle against the Philistines. At the same time, David is siding with the Philistines, but not fighting in that particular battle. He says he wants to fight in the Battle of Gilboa. He kind of pleads to be allowed to fight in it, and Achish, his Philistine lord, wants him to. It's the other Philistine leaders who say, well, we don't trust him. I'm not sure he should. David says, but let me, let me fight. And uh, it is amazing that he maintains his mystery. He maintains the possibility of being the king of the Hebrews. He doesn't fight. Maybe he knew all along they weren't going to let him, so he could protest that he wanted to. We don't know. And yet he writes this elegy for the fallen, who are his supposed enemies, at least King Saul was. It's an amazing poem. It is a poem that is personal and lyrical and has a feeling of genuine, intimate, personal feeling. And you can also picture somebody reading it um, on a big bandstand with loudspeakers and a brass band and flags. And it's page 64. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet, with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in midst of the battle? O oh, Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. 
How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished? Robert, thank you for being a guest on ThoughtCast. I've enjoyed talking to you, Jenny. You've been listening to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>